Hey, everybody, and welcome into the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and today's episode, we'll be talking about the NFL, what's going down there, the NBA's quest for the playoff hunt. We'll talk about a little NCAA and what's going down with college football, and we'll have our best for last. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. And in today's episode, we're going to start off with what's going down in the NFL over the past week. It was honestly a pretty quiet week for the NFL. I mean, nothing really major was happening. We got a couple of meetings. We had Hard Knocks come out. That was pretty much going to be the highlight of today's show. And we'll get to Hard Knocks in a second. But then all of a sudden, tight ends started getting paid. I mean, big money. First, we're going to start off with George Kittle of the San Francisco 49ers receiving a five-year, $75 million contract extension with over $40 million in guarantees. This by far reset the tight end market as the previous high for a tight end annual was Hunter Henry of the Chargers at a hair over $10 million. So not only did he go $5 million more than Hunter Henry, but he did that over a long period of time, firmly resetting the tight end market at the top of the list. Now, George Kittle is the first, second best tight end in the NFL, depending on your opinion. It's out of him and Travis Kelsey, although I throw Zach Ertz's name in there as well from the Philadelphia Eagles. And Kittle got paid like it. To secure $15 million a year, especially with not knowing what the salary cap's going to do next year, we know it can't go below than 175 So maybe that's what they're thinking with $175 million to spend anyway. You've got Jimmy Garoppolo on a very team-friendly deal. You can easily move off some money if George Kittle's contract becomes a little strenuous to the cap next season and for seasons following next season as the cap tries to rebound to get back on schedule the way it would be before COVID obviously impacted with no fans and things of that nature. So while we're recovering from the George Kittle news, that's a big boom drop in the NFL contractually, all of a sudden, boom, here comes reports from Ian Rappaport saying that quietly Travis Kelsey's camp had been working on an extension with the Chiefs. And then 30, 45 minutes later, we're getting Travis Kelsey has signed a four-year extension worth $57 million, which again is big money considering this financial market. Now, remember a couple years ago when the Rams seemed like they were playing with a different salary cap? But they had like a rookie quarterback. Jared Goff was on a rookie deal, rather. So they could afford to pay, you know, Aaron Donald, go get Clay Matthews, give Ty Gurley his money. They were just paying everybody. I mean, if you wanted to play for the Rams, it looked like they were playing basketball the way they were spending salaries. It got so bad that Odell Beckham became linked to the Rams because of how they were paying people. No other reason. I mean, schematically, sure, he'd fit. But in terms of what we have to trade to get him, it didn't really make sense for the Rams. But even he was linked there. He put that in one of his scenes because they were paying people left and right. Like they were playing with a different salary cap. But in the end, it was justified with they have a quarterback on a rookie contract. Look at what Seattle did with Russell Wilson on a rookie contract. They went out and got as many pieces they humanly could to surround Russell Wilson. You look at what the Chiefs did, for instance, with Patrick Mahomes. They went out and got as many weapons as they possibly could to surround Mahomes. And we see this throughout history with young guys, golf even, for the Rams. Like I was just saying, they went out and got a ton of pieces to surround Jared Goff in L.A. And then you get to the Chiefs. 
when the Chiefs started this offseason, they literally, not kidding, had $177 of cap space. Not $177 million, not $177,000. They literally had $177. They had a steak dinner at a very nice five-star restaurant in cap space. I mean, they were scraping pennies. And in this offseason, they have managed to give their quarterback a 10-year, $477 million contract that can be incentivized to 503. They paid their tight end top of the market value. They found a way to pay Chris Jones, who many experts thought they would trade, maybe tag and trade. They found a way to pay him top of the market value for his position. And the Jets can't afford to pay Jamal Adams. I mean, that's just, who are they even paying? I know we talked about this a week or two ago, but like, seriously, they have a quarterback on their rookie deal. Their receiver talent is leaves a lot to be desired. Their only defensive player I can recall them paying is CJ Mosley. I mean, they traded Lennon Williams across the hall, I guess, to the Giants. They got Le'Veon Bell on offense. Their draft picks are offensive linemen. And the quarterback, like I said, is on a rookie deal. Who are they paying? And this is another advantage that Patrick Mahomes has over a good majority of the league. His organization, led by Brett Veach and Clark Hunt, is exceptional. They turned $177, less than two Benjamins, into three very highly paid contracts. That is beyond impressive. And the only thing I think of them cutting money was when Sammy Watkins restructured. I mean, last I checked, Sammy Watkins wasn't making $70 million a year, so that didn't help them all that much. I have no idea where they got this money from. But the benefit of what they did was that the only deal they had to pay in theory this year was Chris Jones because he was a free agent. So Travis Kelsey was an extension. He was already on the books. Patrick Mahomes was also an extension. He was already on the books for another season or two. So in theory, they're not even paying the piper at the moment. They're more robbing Peter to pay Paul later. But if you think about it, they're not even robbing Peter. Peter kind of already got his money. Paul's getting his money later in a different pot. They're returning 21, I believe, of their starters on offense and defense, most in the NFL. And a lot of analysts and a lot of opinionists would would say that the position they're not returning in running back got upgraded with the drafting of Clyde Edwards-Elaire out of LSU. So if you look at it, they got better and somehow turned $177 into three massive contracts. I mean, I'm impressed. Mahomes is talented, but when you have an organization behind you that does those sort of things that can help you, then you automatically stay competitive. And he spoke about that when he signed his massive deal that he did leave Cheddar on the table for guys to continue to surround him with talent for his entire career. So after Travis Kelsey signs his deal, he tweets out six more years because they tacked on the four-year contract to the two years that he already had remaining locks him in Kansas City for six years and guarantees that Travis Kelsey retires as a chief and that he'll always have Patrick Mahomes for the rest of his career. It's a win-win for both sides. And I think that was a great move. Congratulations to Travis Kelsey and George Kittle. And now the next tight end to get paid in theory is Zach Ertz. Now Zach Ertz is in a little different situation than both George Kittle and Travis Kelsey. I can't name the backup in San Francisco. For the life of me, you couldn't have paid me 
to name, honestly, five offensive players in San Francisco the whole season. Obviously, you can name a lot of talent on the Chiefs offense, except their backup tight end. I know the backup tight end villain. He's a young guy by the name of Dallas Goddard. The guy can play. Some people have him ranked as a top 10 tight end in the NFL. He didn't even start. So Zach Ertz does not have nearly the leverage that George Kittle and Travis Kelsey has in terms of trying to get a deal done because a very, very talented tight end is sitting behind him. What makes matters worse? Zach Ertz has two years left on his contract. Dallas Goddard also has two years left on his rookie contract. So they're going to have to make a decision between Dallas Goddard and Zach Ertz one way or another very, very soon. In theory, they bring them both back, but someone's going to offer Dallas Goddard a lot of money. But if Zach Ertz were to hit the open market, somebody will offer him a lot of money as well. I do not envy the position Harry Roseman is in right now, trying to figure that out and signing both of those guys. Unlike San Francisco and unlike Kansas City, they don't have a lot of cap flexibility because their quarterback's big money is kicking in right now. Sure, San Francisco has Garoppolo, but his contract is under $30 million a year. I believe it's 27 and a half, which is very manageable for a starting NFL quarterback, especially one that led you to the Super Bowl last season. And so when it comes down to the Eagles, they have Carson Wentz making a boatload of money. They have little to no flexibility. They're going to have to pay for Darius Slay. And they have two great tight ends, both of which will command a very high salary if they hit the open market. So I'll be interested to see how they handle that situation. Like I said, Zach Ertz is the next one up in terms of the tight ends. But right now we're going to shift into hard knocks, which in my opinion is going to be the most interesting hard knocks probably in years. I mean, you look at the Raiders. I watched every episode very intently and I love the Raiders. You know, John Gruden's knock on wood, if you're with me, had me excited every week. You had the Antonio Brown drama playing out live on hard knocks. And you had the Cleveland Hard Knocks where they made some noise a couple years ago. But this is the first Hard Knocks doing a pandemic. And it's also the first Hard Knocks, I believe, to ever cover two teams. Because rarely the NFL ever has two teams in the same city. So with the Rams and the Chargers not only occupying the same city, but they're occupying the same stadium in SoFi Stadium, which is absolutely beautiful. They are able to cover both teams through the pandemic. It starts off basically with Anthony Lynn holding a team meeting. I'm not sure if it was defense only or offense only or what it was, but it revealed that he had tested positive for coronavirus, becoming the third NFL coach known to have had the virus. Sean Payton had it before we got back in the building. He had it when COVID really was first starting to become big. Sean Payton contracted it. He believes through Mardi Gras. And Doug Peterson, the Philadelphia Eagles head coach, was tested for upon trying to enter the building and realized he had it. So Anthony Lynn becomes the third coach to have it. And he said that if it wasn't for him laying in bed one day watching a golf tournament where the guy who was leading pulls out, complains about pain in certain areas and tests positive for the virus, that he would have never known to get tested. Like sure he felt bad, but it's one of those, I feel bad for a few days, I'll get over it. And he ends up going to get tested, finds out he tested positive for coronavirus. And that was something he said he probably would have spread because he wouldn't have thought about, I have COVID, I could just be sick. You know, despite COVID being out there, most people who feel bad are just having a common cold. They don't have COVID. And so with that happening, 
he was able to bring awareness to his team and to make it real. You saw when he told the guys, hey, I had it. A lot of the guys' faces really tightened up and looked concerned because it's real. It's right there. It is somebody that you can reach out and touch that is your football coach that has had coronavirus and had this pandemic. And then Hard Knocks has its stars. Sean McVay is going to be a star of this Hard Knocks. That is not even a question. He has a great fiance. He has his dog. He was like coaching his dog to do tricks because he missed football so much. He had to coach something. You can see that he's a guy that works out. He's the young guy on the block. He's the new kid on the block in terms of coaching. Not the new kid in terms of experience, but he's still the youngest guy. Him and Cliff Kingsbury are rivaling for that club. And so it was great to see him and his natural element. Great to see Anthony Lynn at home. And then the biggest characters are going to be on the Rams. The Rams win the character debate. It's not even close. You've got Aaron Donald talking about porta potties. You've got Jalen Ramsey beefing with media over Zoom. That was very interesting. You've got cornerbacks trying to lift and get big like Aaron Donald. It's going to be great. Uh, the Chargers had the most interesting in terms of colorful moment when they cut a tight end. And he did not like it. Used a couple of F-bombs in there. Then you got to be effing kidding me. He was not happy about that. Uh, to watch Anthony Lynn talk to the GM, Tom Telesco, joke like, man, you're not Antonio Gates. That was great. Um, this is just going to be amazing. This is going to be a very interesting hard knocks. It's two teams, so it's not nearly the amount of pressure to get an hour's worth of programming every week out of one team. It's two teams. It's a pandemic. You get to see both teams, how they're treating the pandemic in their building, how they're treating the very limited practices. How are they doing with their families and things of that nature? So it is going to be absolutely great seeing grown NFL players who we think are the super tough guys. Be super afraid of a COVID test was amazing. I mean, you saw like 10 or 12 of them on each team going, oh, how far is it going on my nose? Y'all going to touch my brain? Is it going to hurt? And it's like, dude, you literally get paid to run your body into another human body. And like you're worried about a, a nose swab. I mean, that's just spectacular. So I think that was great as well. And I cannot wait to watch the next episode. Now up next, we are going to shift to the NBA and what's going down there. Alrighty guys, and we are back. Now I would like to, like I said, talk about the NBA a little bit and what's going on. The East playoffs are set. I don't think it's going to be the most interesting of first rounds. And the West is all but decided. And that's where anything can happen. We don't even know who the eighth seed is currently. I'm recording this during the Blazers game. So we'll give an update on how I feel about the Western playoffs and best for last, along with the Eastern playoffs. But the seeding games have been great. I love how the NBA is going to reward people who came to play in the bubble with a all bubble team and a coach of the bubble. So that's going to be pretty dope. I think that that'll be amazing to get a look at and to see who the media thinks really ran the bubble. I think the obvious choice for coach of the bubble is Monty Williams. He's the head coach of the only bubble undefeated team at the 8-0 Phoenix Suns. They came in the bubble saying they were trying to go 8-0. They knew that'd probably be the best chance for them getting in the playoffs. They would have done all they could do. And they went 8-0, led by first team bubble member, it should be undisputed. Devin Booker, those guys have been rolling. So has their big man, DeAndre Aiden, even though he missed his COVID test. He came in 
uh, did not start that game, but he really played well. And they've got a lot of contributions. Cameron Payne has played really well. He's played very well. I mean, he came from the G League. The only reason he's even on the team is because he had a relationship with Monty Williams prior. They needed a body, and Monty Williams gave him a call, asked him was he ready and prepared to come in the bubble. Obviously, he said yes, and he's been playing really well and probably earned himself a NBA contract next season because he was in the G League. I think let's just talk about bubble awards a little bit. I would have to go, depends on how they're doing this. If you're just doing this positionless, it's pretty easy. Who's positionless is TJ Warren, Bubble Warren himself. You've got Devin Booker. You've got Luka Doncic. You've got James Harden and Damian Lillard. Dame Dalla himself, who has been on an absolute scoring trail, literally pulling the Portland Trail Blazers by the back of their jerseys, telling them team meet back and just carrying them into the playoffs or attempting to anyway. They're right now in a close battle with the Brooklyn Nets early. And so back to the bubble awards, they're going to give a coach of the bubble. And like I said, that's got to be Monty Williams. He has the only undefeated team in the Phoenix Suns. He's been very inspirational. He's inspired the entire Phoenix Suns organization. And he gave a speech after the game that says, hey, this is not the Phoenix Suns of old. We are a new organization. We are a new brand. And they're going to come to play next season. They're going to be scary out of the West in a reloaded West because we have the healthy Golden State Warriors back. And so it'll be a very interesting Western Conference battle all season next year, adding in the Phoenix Suns as a definite contender to that mix. Now, I was wrong when I said the Pelicans would get the ninth seed. I was incorrect about that. They did not come to play. And I can admit I was wrong. I just figured with the schedule, they were letting Zion out of the doghouse a little bit with his weight problem, a possible weight problem. They won't confirm or deny that. But with his issues, stamina-wise, I thought they could do it. And I was wrong. And I accept the fact that I was wrong. And that's okay. Hey, we're all wrong from time to time. All right? I do predictions. I don't just do recaps. I do predictions. Sometimes my predictions are wrong. And it happens. They are went to a little turmoil. Reports are leaking out that Lonzo Ball was disinterested and looked like he was disengaged the entire time in the bubble. I don't know what that's about. I don't know if that's just a team source just saying that or if that's just GMs, rival GMs that want to break up the Pelicans' young core because they have a lot of talent in it and they want to cause disruption. But the reports are that he was uninterested. Um, it is rampant speculation that Alvin Gentry will not be back next season, which is not shocking. When there is a new changing of the guard in the front office uh, with a new executive vice president, David Griffin, and a new GM in Trahan London, it is not shocking that they want to bring in their own guy, especially when the team is not having the level of success that they would like in a playoff berth. But some things in order to, I think, fix New Orleans, they have to get in a head coach that is willing to develop players. And that is why the Ty Lue thing just doesn't seem to work with me. Ty Lue's only head coaching job really was LeBron's Cavs, and that was to win a championship. And then he had a couple of offers after he was let go from Cleveland, but decided to take an assistant coaching job with the Clippers, a team ready to win a championship. I don't see him committing himself to four to five years of trying to rebuild the Pelicans. Maybe even two to three years of struggling and trying to battle through a very, very tough reloaded West to get the Pelicans to where they need to be at the top of the NBA. I just don't see that happening. 
uh, the great pick would be Godfather offering Monty Williams. I don't think he'll leave Phoenix. He's obviously enamored with that organization. They trusted him. And so I don't think he'll be coming back to New Orleans. Honestly, I would love to see a college coach there. I would love to see Will Wade of LSU. That would be a great pick. He can coach. That's obvious. And we he is willing to develop. He's used to colleges, used to developing players to the maximum of their potential. And so giving him a bunch of young talent, he wants to get up and down, but he also preaches defense. And I think that'll be something that the Pelicans could definitely use because it seems like they were disinterested in playing defense the entire bubble. But I think the leader in the clubhouse will be former Bucks head coach Jason Kidd. Now, Jason Kidd has already been fired twice, and he's never won 50 games in a season. But if you look at that Bucks roster, that's pretty much Jason Kidd. It's very reminiscent of when Mark Jackson, who I think should definitely be a candidate for this job, but it was very reminiscent of when Mark Jackson left, or was fired, rather, from the Golden State Warriors, and then Steve Kerr waltzes in and win a championship like the first year, or the first second year, because they used a different style of offense, a little more up-tempo, a little more three-happy with Steph and Clay. And yet, at the same time, the Steve Kerr said it himself, a lot of the defensive bases and a lot of the defensive principles came from Mark Jackson, who for some reason has seems to be ostracized and blackballed from the NBA head coaching circles. And I know he's not gonna leave for an assistant job out of the booth because that's a pretty easy gig making a good ton of money. And so I think that he should definitely be a candidate for this head coaching job along with Jason Kidd. And I feel like they should look into the college ranks at a Will Wade who coaches at LSU and other top young coaches who are willing to coach and develop young talent and be able to connect with these guys. I mean, look at your best players. J.J. Reddick's above 30, so is Derek Favors. Drew Holiday's 29. Then you got Brandon Ingram. He's 22. Lonzo Ball is 20, 21. Zion's a very young 20-year-old. Josh Hart is not even 23 yet. So when you've got a lot of this talent that's very, very young, you need a coach that's willing to coach those guys, grow with those guys, and are aware how to connect people in that age group because when you're a college coach, you're recruiting 15, 16, 17 year olds, and you're coaching 18 through 23. So you're used to that age group. And so I think that a good college coach, like I said, a Will Wade, would be very interesting to land in New Orleans. I don't think Alvin Gentry is gonna keep this job. I don't necessarily think it's his fault. Ironically, I think it's the same reason why Monty Williams was out in New Orleans. His teams were never healthy. I mean, in the case of Monty Williams, he had guys like Eric Gordon missing 30 games a year, Ryan Anderson missing 20 some odd games a year. A lot of that team was built around players that were not healthy, and that team was not that talented. But the players were not healthy. And so when you go to an Alvin Gentry, that's the same thing. A, the people that hired him, no longer there. So Dell Demps, who hired Alvin Gentry, no longer works for the team. So that's an issue. Because now the person who would speak up for you with the owner, Ms. Benson, who would say, no, 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 I believe in this guy. I believe in his vision. We need to get him a healthy ball club with a little more talent. That person's gone. So David Griffin could go to Ms. Benson and go, hey, I didn't hire this guy. And I'm not as huge fan as other people could be. Plus, we're not winning games. I think it's time for us to move on. And she won't really fight him back because she's not seeing results on the court. But... I think Alvin Gentry didn't get the fairest shake here because Zion Williamson only played 24 to 27 games out of 70 because he was hurt for most of the year. 
You've got nagging injuries to Brandon Ingram. Alonzo Ball was trying to literally change how he shoots a basketball. Drew Holiday was going through things. You never really had a full healthy 12, but for about 10 games, if you count when Zion was in shape and when they came back, Brandon Ingram rolling and all that good stuff, that team was never healthy. So I think them struggling, especially going through that 13-game losing streak they went to early in the season, really didn't give Alvin Gentry the best chance to succeed. And ultimately, he'll lose this job this offseason. But the Pelicans have a lot to do. Zion Williamson said it himself that he needs to get his body where it needs to be. I don't think it's a raw weight issue. I don't think 285 is too heavy. I think 300 is. And I can easily guess he's 300, 305 pounds right now. Jumping up and down, bouncing off the floor because he did not look like himself. We've seen Zion at Duke. We've seen Zion at Spartanburg Academy in high school. And he was one of the fastest people on the court at all times. He was obviously the highest jumper. He exploded for rebounds. He exploded for blocks. He definitely exploded for dunks. He was always exploding. Everywhere you looked, he was bouncing. He was jumping up and down with energy. He was yelling. He was screaming. And it looks like he's been laboring. I don't know if that's the extra weight. I don't know if that's just he's not in shape yet, just conditioning-wise. But it looks like when he scores a two, he's laboring down the court. But when he gets a dunk, he doesn't get down the court until everybody else is down there. It just doesn't like the energy's there. Even the excitement to play basketball is there. It could be from the lack of fans, but I don't think so. So I think he needs to get down to around 280, 285, a lean cut, 280, 285, and make sure he's in shape and ready to roll for next season because they have a shorter than normal offseason. It's not that much shorter, but it's shorter than normal if you don't miss the playoffs in April and you don't play again until, you know, October. It's a little bit shorter with missing now and playing in December 1st. Training camp before that, obviously. So I think that he needs to get his body in a little bit better shape. Not that much. I think he's close. And have the Pelicans ready to go for next season. Now, this, like I said, the seeding games have been spectacular. The NBA has done a great job with the virtual fans. They're going to open the bubble a bit by allowing close friends uh, like an entourage, a close entourage. So LeBron's four horsemen. So maybe Rich and Maverick and Randy come into the bubble for a little while. Maybe, you know, his wife Savannah makes a trip. Guys have agents who they may want to bring in. Personal trainers. A lot of these guys have personal trainers. Maybe guys like Chris Brickley comes through to work with Carmelo and people like that because they all have trainers. Now, they'll be subject to the same quarantine that the players are. And if they were to leave, I'm assuredly say they couldn't come back. I wouldn't expect the NBA to allow somebody to come back. They leave and quarantine and all that other stuff. That just seems like a lot of work for non-players. And so I think that'll help some of these guys relax and have more of a homey feel. You know, if they can bring a significant other in or a trainer in or an entourage in or somebody they're used to having around them when they're playing, that could help these guys and guys relax, get more of a sort of natural rhythm and get back to the level of basketball we're used to seeing from them because some guys are struggling. LeBron's not looking like himself for the most part. Anthony Davis is looking a little off. You've got guys that people trust and they're in their routine that they're not there right now. And so it could be affecting them a little bit because it's an empty gym. They don't have the usual routine and it's throwing guys off a little bit. But I'll be definitely interested to see how players play after the restrictions are lifted a little bit, if that helps. 
I will be talking about the NBA playoffs and my first round predictions, along with the play-in scenario in best for last. And up next, we'll be shifting to the NCAA and what's going down with college football. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. And now we're going to talk about the NCAA and what's going down with collegiate athletics this fall. Division two and Division three have all but been canceled at all levels. Now we're starting to have several Division one leagues cancel football, cancel fall athletics. But obviously, the money maker is football. So you had the Ivy League shut down, the MAC has shut down, and then the big dogs started following. We lost the Big Ten. And the Pac-12. Now, they have been pretty much joined at the hip. So when it comes to the Power Five, there's been three conferences rolling together. The SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12. And then two conferences rolling together, the Big 10 and the Pac-12. So when the Big 10 makes a decision, the Pac-12 follows right behind it. And when the ACC, the ACC, the SEC, or the Big 12 makes a decision, the other two fall right behind it. They've pretty much been rolling together. So when we the Big Ten was rumored to be losing, a player at a house they mentioned, could, they just tweeted, how about we go play in the SEC for a year? That was honestly the sentiment or the thought process that schools would split. So if, let's say the Big Ten went to a 7-5 to five vote, we're going to cancel fall sports, especially football. What if those five just said, well, screw it, we're going to go play. We'll join the Big Ten, we'll join the ACC, we'll join the SEC, spread us out, you know, get us in, fit us in the schedule and stuff like that because we want to play football. So we're going to go play. Screw y'all, we'll be back in a year. And that was linked to happen. I mean, we had Ohio State linked to the Big 12 and the SEC. We had Michigan going wherever Ohio State went. We had Nebraska going home to the Big 12. So ultimately, we were looking at possibly three major super conferences. We don't know what any of the Pac-12 schools were going to do if they had were going to decide to split. So we were looking at three super conferences, basically, and then figuring out some sort of postseason national championship. Obviously, there's no bowl games in this scenario. So maybe the two highest ranked champions play for a national championship or we're going to roll with two conferences. The winner of the ACC and the SEC play for the championship or something like that. They were going to figure it out. But so far, the Big 12, the SEC and the ACC are holding strong. They say they're looking at what Ohio State and the Big Ten looked at while they canceled to see what's going on there with their medical people. But so far, they've met and they believe that they could pull it off. But Ohio State, Michigan, Nebraska, they all reaffirmed their commitment to the Big Ten. And they're not going to split to join a super conference or to create one at this time. But in regards to the players, I believe that they deserve the chance. Uh, The Southland Conference is one of the few is one of the FCS conferences that have canceled. And just reading through some of the tweets from some of the players at that Southeastern, those guys are hurting. Uh, guys who may have been injured for a couple of years who finally got a chance to get on the field and now they believe they got another season taken from them. You've got seniors who may not be able to play. I mean, they were told canceled. They weren't saying postponed, they were saying target for a postponement. And for the spring season, but a lot of those guys don't know if they'll play again. And so that's rough to read tweets. You've got Justin Fields at Ohio State with just tweeting, shaking my head, because those guys believe that they deserve an opportunity to go at it and to play college football this season. 
and I believe they should have been granted that opportunity. There's no way that those guys should have just gotten taken. I believe they should have been given the opportunity to fight for their season and opportunity to play the sport that they love because football isn't like basketball. You can play pickup basketball until you're 70. You can always get back on the court. You know, man, I was really good in college or I really love basketball and I just want to go play. I wasn't good enough to go pro, but I just like playing the game. You can play until you're 70. There's no pickup football. It doesn't happen. You leave high school football or you leave college football, and that's it. You could become a coach. You could become a super minor league player in some states and cities and stuff like that. But in regards to playing pickup football just for the kicks at 40 years old, that doesn't happen. You don't have that opportunity. A lot of times when guys walk off the field, their senior year of college or their senior year of high school, they never pick up a football or play football again because there's no way to do it. There's no pickup football. There's no old man league for football. There's no rec league for football. So it is crushing to those guys who won't be able to play football again, possibly, because of this is their senior year and sports have been canceled at the moment with a target to play in the spring. So I think that we will have college football. I think that we'll have a split season where some schools and some conferences say, screw it, we're charging on, we're going to go in the fall. I think the SEC and the ACC will play in the fall. The Big 12, I don't know. I'm not quite sure on the Big 12 yet. They seem to be on the fence. They were on the fence in the early debates about the possibility of canceling when the SEC and the ACC were saying, no, we're going. The Big 12 kind of waited a little while for their statement. So we'll see about that. But I know that we'll have college football. I guess we'll have split champions where the three who played in the fall ballot out for a championship. And then the spring season, they play their own little championship and they get crowned in the spring. And we'll just have split 2020 champions. We'll have dual champions for the first time since the before the BCS came into existence. And so that'll be interesting to watch. Like I said, I feel horrible for kids who are seniors and may not get a chance to suit back up again in helmets and shoulder pads. I flat out feel horrible for fan bases and parents, you know, that I mean, these were a lot of those connections to the field is dad coached me through high school and now I get to play college and he gets to watch me play college ball. And some of all of our hard work is paying off and they may not get the chance to exhibit that and to show that. And for that, that truly stinks. But we'll be watching the situation carefully. I'm all over that on the Twitter page. So we'll be watching carefully and hopefully they get something resolved and give these kids an opportunity to show what they can do on the gridiron. And up next, we'll have our best for last, which will be my first round predictions for the NBA playoffs, along with the play-in games. Alrighty guys and welcome back. Wow. 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 The Portland Trailblazers versus the Nets just ended. And I was gonna do this by talking about in this best for last the playoffs. And I'm still going to, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk about that game. That game was nuts. It ended up being a scoring battle between Karis Levert and Damian Lillard. And that was a flat-out war between the two of them, coming down to a Karis LeVert shot that I thought looked good coming out of his hand. 
that game was crazy. It got Portland into the play-in game, which they will play on Saturday versus the Grizzlies as the eighth seed. The Grizzlies, being the ninth seed, will have to beat Portland two times back-to-back -back in order to secure the eighth seed for the right to play the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, on to the playoffs. Obviously, the entire East is set and the West is not set yet. But I think that Portland's going to win the first game and take down a hobbled Memphis team in order to the right to play the Lakers. So in the first round in the East, we're going to have Milwaukee versus Orlando. I think that an angry Giannis from his one game suspension for the headbutt incident is going to win that series in a 4-1 gentleman sweep. We're going to have Toronto versus Brooklyn. Look, Brooklyn's nothing to play with, especially with Karis LeVert playing the way that he's playing. But I've got Toronto winning that series 4-2. We're going to have Boston versus what's left of the 76ers. I've got Boston sweeping that series. The Sixers are just too hurt. Simmons is out. We don't know if Embiid can give you anything in that series, especially early. So I've got Boston winning that in a sweep. And then Miami versus Indiana. Bubba Warren versus... Jimmy Butler, we've had that robbery going on for months now. I think Miami takes that series in six to advance to the second round. And now we're going to shift to the West. And I think the Lakers and Portland absolutely battle in a hard six-game series with the Lakers winning. It's going to be tough. No one can guard Damian Lillard. They might have to institute the blitz concept in order to get the ball out of his hands early, especially with them not having their great guard defenders in Avery Bradley and Rajon Rondo available for that series. Then they're gonna shift to the Clippers and Dallas. I think that's a tough five gamer. I think that the Clippers have too much down the stretch. They have too many different guys and bodies that they can throw at Luka. Obviously, Porzingis is unguardable. He's seven foot three, can shoot, can drive and dunk. But I just don't think Dallas has enough to really contend with the Clippers and win more than one game. So I think it's a tough five. Now, the interesting matchup is 3-6 Denver and Utah. Now Denver has been the darling of the bubble besides Phoenix because Denver has unveiled Bowl Bowl. They have unveiled Michael Porter Jr. They have unveiled a tall ball lineup. They've done a lot of different things in their seeding games. But Utah is a scrappy team. Height does not matter to Utah. Why? They have Rudy Gobert who sends to battle with Jokic. But I think Jokic ultimately pulls Gobert away from the rim a little too often. And with Denver being able to go so big and so skilled, I think Denver wins that in six games. And then Oklahoma City and Houston. I mean, that could not have been drawn up any better. We've got Houston, who traded Chris Paul to Oklahoma City, and then traded for Russell Westbrook from Oklahoma City. So you've got Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook, who got swapped in a trade, now facing off with the exact same record in the Western Conference first round. Now, that would be a big deal, the fact that OKC got four instead of five with home court. But since we're at a neutral site, home court does not matter. And Russell Westbrook will miss the start of the first round, if not the whole first round, with a strained quad. So with that, I've got Oklahoma City winning it in seven games. I think that Houston makes it interesting. When they can rain those threes the way they do, they'll win a couple games and harden to get you a couple. Those threes will get you one or two. But ultimately, I think that Oklahoma City can outlast them. They'll be just too big. Steve Adams is going to wear those guys out down low. And I think OKC wins in a tough seven-game series to conclude the first round. 
And that'll wrap up today's show. I'd like to thank you guys for joining me. Remember, you can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we have the Twitter page at JTime Sports with breaking news and coverage of all professional major sports, especially the big four, baseball, football, basketball. And so I thoroughly enjoyed today's show. It was a packed show. It was a great show. And I'm so excited to see the rest of the NBA playoffs. And we'll be doing this thing every week. So come back and join us next Friday. You guys have a great day.